transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the American desert, and if you sit around a desert campfire often enough, the subject will eventually turn to mysterious shapes and lights in the sky. No matter if you're enjoying the company of wildfire crews or seasonal park rangers, rock climbers, or retired aerospace engineers, those fortunate enough to spend a lot of time beneath a clear desert sky will always have stories. Stories about meteor showers, of course, or the occasional delight of watching the International Space Station travel from one horizon to the other, or those rare places where on a moonless night the Milky Way is so bright you can see your shadow on the ground. You get familiar with the astronomical and you get familiar with the earthly war machinery those lines of military flares bobbing down on little parachutes dropped by aircraft above the base, the dark choppers rumbling overhead, and the test flights of the various drones, themselves delta or chevron-shaped, but by design not covered in flashing neon lights and by our current technical limitations, unable to pop in and out of our reality at will. But if you have seen one of the black triangles, one of those eerie V-shaped things hovering silently or with a barely audible hum alongside a two-lane highway as a piercing white spotlight scans the ground and perhaps comes right at you or your car and time itself feels charged and changed, altered, well, then you tend to put that in the mystery category. And even if you've told the story before, you feel compelled to tell it again, less to hear yourself than in hopes of hearing somebody else's version. Like religious fanatics telling the melodramatic tales of their conversions. Now these dark vessels, whatever they are, operate with an immunity to gravity. And they have no apparent need to cover a distance by actually crossing it. They radiate something too, which can appear as a haze or a thin cloud immediately around the craft. And in a British Ministry of Defense report made public in the 1990s, it was claimed that these things also have the ability to cause hallucinations in human witnesses. The British researchers trying for some kind of natural world explanation theorized that these haunting bat rays of the sky might consist of plasma. One of the four states of matter, plasma, gases combining positive ions, highly charged, with electrons of a negative charge. It's the stuff of stars, the neon explosion of lightning. And we use artificially generated plasma for everything from plasma flat screen TV sets to arc welding. 
remember reading that British MOD report years ago and not really finding much comfort in it. We can generate electromagnetic plasma that does some pretty useful stuff. But if football field-sized black airships of astounding and awe-inspiring dexterity are forming out of plasma and hovering over people and cars and highways and farms with those sinister searchlights aimed right at the very people who perhaps just had a notion to go to the window or step outside to look in a certain direction. And all the while, these things are evading fighter jets and blinking on and off radar screens. Then who or what is creating these incredible plasma craft equipped with disco lights and psychic radio? Why do some people notice these outrages low in the evening sky while others seem to drive on by unperturbed or disinterested? The Black Triangle sightings are commonly said to have begun in the Hudson Valley of New York State in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Thousands of people witnessed them, including police and military personnel and the night shift at the Indian Point nuclear plant. These sightings led to such a panic that the inevitable hoaxes followed, most notoriously when a group of ultralight pilots flew in a triangular formation on a summer night with the intent of fooling the yokels. But the mundane whine of their gasoline engines and inability to shoot off into the clouds like a noiseless rocket gave the pranksters away. Now, there have been many historic sightings of large triangular craft, including across Belgian airspace in 1989 and 1990, and the Phoenix Lights in 1997 that we have discussed on this broadcast in the past, and the Stevensville, Texas sightings of 2008, which one witness described as three monstrous lights on the horizon as blindingly bright as an arc welder spark. But the existence of the stealth fighter and stealth bomber, which were occasionally seen in test flights by the middle and late 1980s, they provided a reliable form of explanation of debunking. Neither the F-117 nor the B-2 are anti-gravity craft that can sit absolutely motionless in the sky or move across a hundred miles of horizon in a flash. They are conventional military aircraft built to evade detection by radar. They're designed directed at stealth. Still, there's no denying that an overflight by one of these stealth aircraft is dramatic, even when you know what they are. The problem, historically, is that awe-inspiring black triangular craft have been reported long before the first of the military stealth craft had made it to the test flight stage. In the UFO movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, filmed in 1976 and early 1977, there are several memorable scenes with triangular formations of brilliant white lights shooting off in all directions, like shooting stars. Hovering triangular ships with brilliant spotlights at their corners elegantly tumble through the air just above the landing strip at Devil's Tower, too. 
The international team chasing global UFO encounters even has its own flag. It's separate from both the United States and that of the United Nations, and it shows a black triangle with a white light beaming from its center. The technical advisor for this movie was Dr. J. Allen Hynek, an astrophysicist whose specialty was stellar evolution and binary stars. He appears in the film briefly and as himself with his pipe and his Van Dyke beard watching the mothership descend. Hynek served on all of the U.S. government's known UFO study groups. It was Project Sign, Project Grudge, a name that gives you a sense of the Air Force's enthusiasm for these studies. And then there was Project Blue Book and the Robertson panel. Skeptical of the eyewitness reports at first, Heineck began to realize there were sightings and encounters that could not be explained away, 5% on average. When he surveyed 44 of his fellow astronomers in the early 1950s, he was surprised to find 11% of them had witnessed something beyond available explanation. So Heineck was slowly drawn away from the Air Force's program of debunking all sightings. And by the mid-1970s, he was a cautious proponent of the scientific study of unidentified aerial phenomena. The brilliantly lit craft that zip and tumble through the night skies and close encounters of the third kind were based on decades of eyewitness reports, many from commercial and military pilots. But Hynek did not just appear in Close Encounters, he created the classification system. Six types of experience that range from lights in the sky to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The last one meaning a clear and close sighting, not just of a craft, but of occupants. Humanoid figures, robots, giants, elves, angels, gods, and monsters. The triangle sightings began a long time ago. V-shaped and U-shaped craft with brilliant white lights also describe the famous Lubbock Lights, seen often and even photographed over that northwestern Texas city in August and September of 1951. What made the Lubbock sighting so convincing were the witnesses, including many science professors and researchers from Texas Tech there in Lubbock. Dr. Grayson Mead, who was part of the second major sighting, calculated the craft's speed to be more than 600 miles per hour, its altitude only 2,000 feet above Lubbock, a thin layer of haze visible beneath the V-shaped formation of perfectly round and brilliant blue-green lights. 1951. Project Blue Book analyzed the photographs shot by Texas Tech student Carl Hart Jr. And while the Air Force could not or would not say what the Lubbock lights might be, they conceded it was not a hoax. Attempts to dismiss the sightings as the night flights of small birds, plovers, did not hold up well to eyewitness reports such as those of Dr. W.L. Ducker, a department head and petroleum engineer at Texas Tech, and his wife, Mrs. Ducker, who described a huge, soundless flying wing that passed right over her house. Just as reported in Phoenix of 1997, Stevensville of 2008, Belgium in 1989, or Hudson Valley for several years in the early 1980s, 
But Mrs. Ducker watched this silent monstrosity at a time when the only American airplane that could travel that fast was the F-84 Thunderjet, which was named appropriately for its deafening roar that could shake a whole town and was the terror of the Korean War. And over Nuremberg, a report of something like a black spear. Immense across the pre-dawn sky, one of many baffling sights early on April the 14th, in the year 1561. An illustrated broadsheet was printed after the event with an illustration of a jet black arrow hanging low in the sky over Nuremberg, stretching over the whole of the medieval town and its church towers. Carl Jung wrote about this 16th century mass sighting in his book on the topic, Flying Saucers, A Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Skies. That's a good book. Now the Mojave Desert Explorer will recognize in these tales a particular shape that is cut into the ground along the ancient trail on the hills above the Mojave River at Afton Canyon. Black triangles carved into the hard desert ground by unknown hands, hundreds of years in age. If you've never given the subject a thought, if the spiritual and the metaphysical have not troubled your mind, or even more so if you had previously made a point of not believing in such things, an overwhelming encounter with the unknown can shake you right to your very core. If you're a believer in a particular religion, you may find yourselves wondering if you chose poorly. Wondering if by culture or circumstance you got the short end of the stick when the lots were drawn. Wondering why your belief requires such determination and study and faith. While right here on the side of a common highway, something appears that is as majestic and baffling and otherworldly and real as what Moses saw glimmering upon the mountain. Fire without smoke, a shaft of fire that does not consume the desert brush. A light psychically communicating with the wary shepherd, electric fire, thousands of years before the pioneering work of Franklin and Tesla and Edison. Or the divine light of infinite brightness at the moment of Siddhartha's enlightenment. Or the brilliant lights with their intense radiation that left St. Paul's eyes blinded and burned on the road to Damascus. Something visits us, and it has the power to live in our dreams. A stream of data invading our thoughts. Like the nervous prologue you'll see on hundreds of UFO reports. I felt compelled to look out the window. I woke from a dream, and I knew I should step outside into the night. My attention was drawn and focused upon a light that initially appeared entirely mundane. That's how it started when I saw a particular thing on a particular road some 15 years ago, twilight on a crisp late December evening, where the Mojave meets the Great Basin. My attention was drawn to a mundane light on the northern horizon. I was not alone, but because such experiences are professionally useful in my line of work, and less so for those in other professions... I will not disclose my companion's identity, but we watched this light for some time, a few minutes at least. As we idly discussed what it might be, 
some sort of lighted tower above the next town. In a flash, and by flash I mean it would appear to be vague, and many miles to the north, north on Highway 395 on the way to Lone Pine, simply changed positions in space and time. The distant light became an enormous thing immediately to the right, to the east, at first hovering completely still. Some years earlier, I was snorkeling around the Great Reef in the waters off Belize and encountered three enormous manta rays swimming in perfect formation, making a tight turn through a narrow coral canyon. It was a beautiful and shocking sight, the overwhelming sense of encountering something so very different than yourself, yet entirely at home in this world. So this thing is floating about a hundred feet above the desert floor. That's what it reminded me of. But instead of swimming, it hovered. And then it moved south, slowly, lazily, at the speed of a leisurely walk. No sound of aircraft engines. It's very low altitude, perfectly maintained. Instead of gills rhythmically opening and closing, there were hazy, throbbing lights at the corners and in the center shining down upon the desert with such brilliant intensity that I could see the details of each desert bush as the circle of light moved south, that great unblinking eye. I've never looked at the symbol on the back of a dollar bill the same way again. Now there was a dirt road just ahead, an asphalt apron reaching out to the highway, and I turned my old Jeep Cherokee and rumbled over the cattle guard and came to an abrupt stop. We opened the doors, we hopped out, getting one more quick glance. And in another flash, it was gone, a point of light arcing over the high purple clouds to the southeast. Now I had seen a couple of curious things before. Uncanny, if not spectacular, the kind of things people probably used to take for granted. And it's my conviction that the supernatural was an accepted part of life all around the world, a world with weaker connections between cities and towns, large and small, weaker and less corrosive networks of business and industry. With deeper, if damaged, roots to the essence of our humanity. Until the middle of the last century, the jet age, the space age, the nuclear era. Until the age of the computer and its all-encompassing internet, which in three short decades has transformed our lives into little more than low-cost fodder for the marketing machine, the credit bureaus, the great advertising network that feeds us everything from pizza coupons to enemy propaganda. Utterly indifferent to truth, unconcerned with morals, completely disinterested in our welfare as people, as a species. But as the primary technological intelligence to rise up on this earth, in this era, as the vessel through which our solar system, our part of the galaxy, has come to be aware of itself, we are owed more. Deserve is a subjective term. We are owed more. There is more, whatever it might prove to be. There is more both to be discovered and found anew. But the U.S. military and intelligence services ultimately had no interest in that kind of discovery. The only reason the United States government got into the UFO reporting business is because of Russia. 
combination of mass panic and ignorance can be easily exploited by a foreign adversary. So the primary job, the only job really, of the American government's UFO research effort was to convince Americans there was nothing to worry about and that the people who saw such fantastic things in the sky were nothing but crackpots. Yet many thousands, perhaps millions, have seen the kind of mind-altering thing so often witnessed looming over the American desert over the many years of our time. People come away from it in very different ways. of the week this part of the desert had been clear of the wildfire smoke the wildfire smoke pouring off dozens of fires up and down California mostly up in northern California forest chaparral parkland whole towns vineyards farms and we got the smoke today from the canyon fire out by Disneyland. It's not too bad right now. Most is blowing through Gorgonio Pass to the low desert. But it's a ugly thing to see this kind of haze over a national park landscape. Like when these increasingly large and fast-moving fires rip through Yosemite. More fires, more extreme fires. That's what we've known was coming for a couple of decades now. You know, extreme lost its power as a word over that same period. It's hard to take a word seriously or literally when it's printed all over Cheetos and sports drinks. So if you've been wondering what extreme really means when it comes to the current conditions, there's more of everything piled up atop more of everything. These fires are so horrific because extreme winds push them through extremely dry brush and invasive weeds. And there's a lot more of both right now because of the combination of extreme drought. Four winters with no snow to speak of, no winter rains in the lower elevations, and then an extreme winter with more snow than anybody's ever kept track of. What the newspapers called the endless winter, last winter, when the ski resorts stayed open all summer long and the northern Sierra Nevada had broken all records by April. With another several months of snow to come, extremes in every direction, from Jerry Brown standing on dry ground up at Echo Summit at winter's end to that same spot at the same time this year, when the governor would have been under 70 feet of snow. More snow than even the El Nino of 1982. Water sloshing over the dams. Floods in places nobody remembered ever flooding before. And that was followed by the hottest summer in the recorded history of the state of California. Every little thing that burst out of the wet ground... All these little weeds, all green and happy, they fairly quickly turned into bone-dry kindling. Record snow to record heat. 
Record winds. Record wildfires. Record death tolls. To be followed by record mudslides and flooding as the parade of extremes continues. When you can't go outside because breathing the air will kill you, and when you can't go inside because you've been evacuated along with everybody else in town, and the power's out so the filtered air conditioner doesn't help, and your car melted in the driveway and anyway the roads are all closed, well, now we are living the extreme life. The extreme life as long promised by the sports drink brands if we survive the first house I ever owned was a little mountain cabin up against Cuyamaca Rancho State Park it burnt down to nothing in the witch fire some 15 years ago now I wasn't there luckily I guess and I'd sold the place a dozen years before that, but you remember your first house, and when that fire blasted through those mountains, I remembered all the work I'd done on that place. The trash cans I filled with bullet casings and cigarette butts and the occasional needle or little metal pipe. Local meth dealers had rented the place for years before I bought it for about the price of a new pickup truck today. And they did not take very good care of the cabin or the half acre of pines in a little meadow off the front porch. The Pacific Crest Trail was down the slope and I'd walk the dog there and I'd come across through hikers who generally did not notice the little cabin in the shadows up there and they were feeling pretty proud of themselves as they should. And then here comes some hillbilly with a wolf dog and a can of cold beer talking to his tape recorder. Some years ago, I was coming up from Anza Borrego and decided to go by the old place. And sure enough, the people who lived there had rebuilt completely the same cabin, the same dimensions, but now made of fine materials, good windows, and cedar siding. Or maybe something fireproof that only looked like cedar siding, which is probably smart. Now, here's something interesting. Look up here, it looks like the remains of a morning dove. Up here in this clump of yucca spines. Feathers all over. I think this is what's left of the rib cage here. You can picture a big old red-tailed hawk sitting right up there for probably a couple hours enjoying dinner. Looking out over this valley. Listening to Desert Oracle Radio on KCDZ 107.7 FM in Joshua Tree. Heard from Amboy to Zizix and across the Mojave Wilderness. 
look us up on your internet device and find out about the show on November 16, Thursday night in Palm Springs at the Ace Hotel Desert Oracle Radio Live on stage. Free reserved seating and a hotel discount code awaits you at desertoracle.com. You can hear us Friday nights, 10 p.m., 10 p.m. on the dot now. We're on the clock. Good night from the Voice of the Desert.